This is Being Modern, Being Human, a podcast about contemporary society. My guest today is Gerald Everett Jones, an award-winning writer and a host of Get Published Radio. His latest novel, Meek and Moira and Bread, is a romantic comedy set behind the scenes of showbiz, especially pop music. In this episode, we will talk about how show business affects lives, how it affects the lives of those who are inside it. Thank you very much for joining me, Gerald. Let's begin. Thank you for having me on. And I should mention that I'm on the beautiful left coast of America here on the Pacific Ocean, Hollywood adjacent, if you will. And yes, I do have some background in inside show business, if you will. I co-authored a book, a series of nonfiction books on digital film production back in the early days of HD. And I, like most writers in town, I have a closet full of scripts that <laughs> have made the rounds, as they say. So, yeah, successful books, but as a screenwriter, no. <laughs> right, that, that's interesting. I was going to ask you, as you mentioned, you have some experience, at least, observing uh, this field, but what kind of research did you do and how did you imagine your characters? You know, I have been behind the camera. I, I have slept and focused and, you know, and coached and even in some, I had a long lesson in stunt fighting for one film, but in terms of research for this one and setting it in the arena of pop music. My initial inspiration actually was late one night I was watching, I'm very fond of Hollywood romantic comedies, especially the pre-code movies, you know, Lubitsch and some of those. And one of the things that really intrigued me and it made me curious is we're living in what you might call a post-Me Too era. I mean, it's not like, it's not like that those issues are over with, but we're living in the consequences of that new awareness. In other words, is seduction now a contract negotiation regardless of who initiates it? Okay. Would you be uncomfortable in a dark theater? May I hold your hand? You know, it's like, <laughs> we might be losing something there. Okay. And there may be a reluctance and that, that, that might be a separate discussion. But I wondered, okay, what if I'm going to do a romantic comedy like these old movies that were done going into an era that really had a lot of censorship, but so many things were suggested in delicious ways. In, a, in this post-Me Too wor world now, how is romantic comedy possible? What would a romantic comedy look like? And so I thought, okay, romantic comedy got to be three-way split. Okay, got it, got to be love triangle. Okay. But then also I was thinking about some of the somewhat later films, especially Tracy and Hepburn. Okay. They were actually, they were not only lovers, they were, they were friends. They entertained each other. I mean, also, also, you know, Nick and Nora Charles and the Thin Man. Okay. That, their dialogue was they were kidding each other, teasing each other, 
playing with the dog, but they weren't really, I mean, there wasn't all of this fighting and passion and throwing pots and pans and whatever. Okay, so that was really my inspiration. And then I was reminded of the, there's a Tracy Hepburn story where she is a sportsman and she's a really talented amateur. And he is a an agent who handles, you know, prize fighters and such. And it's called. And I thought, okay, in the modern world, what would that look like? What about we'll make him a Hollywood agent and she would be Beyonce. And I was, you know, I'm more familiar with Cher's career. So I went back to the Cher's farewell tour. And I look, and the other thing that struck me in my, and I did a lot of research in terms of, I studied her, I studied the YouTubes of the, of the concerts. I also, I looked into the story of her life and biography. And one of the things that really struck me was how many concert performances do you think she's given? I read your book and I think that was several oh. thousand, right? Okay. The spoiler, yeah, because you read the book. Yeah. She, over 50, a career of 50 years, she did more than a thousand concerts. And, you know, this is stadium concerts with tens of thousands of people in the audience. And so, you know, the trigger for this plot was uh, we have Moira, who is actually, a, Again, a post-Me Too feminist, assertive, self-confident, but she's a criminal defense attorney. Okay. She's not afraid. She's not scared. But she was trained as a, an opera singer. She studied bel canto, which I did in actually as, a, as an act. I, before I was a writer, I was an actor. Okay. And in college, one of my courses was in bel canto opera now i it helped it, it was for my speaking voice i can't really brag about my singing voice or my musical talent but i did understand the principles behind the we're talking about early early 19th century even late 18th century opera before microphones how did you project to the back of the hall? Okay. And opera singers especially were trained in a very special vocal technique so that they didn't necessarily have to scream. So they could even perhaps sing even the more subtle passages by elongating the vowels and making sure that they really pronounce the truncating consonant. So, and the people in the front row might see them spitting, actually. Okay. So anyhow, she's been trained in this. And then, it, so basically, a, a society lady hears her singing in the shower at the gym and says, oh my, you know, you seem to really have some talent. And she says, yeah, I sing in the shower. And, and uh, she says, you know, you should meet my friend, Mick. Mick, Mick, Mick McGuire is a... Hollywood agent, and you should meet him. 
And it, of course, it turns out that he represents somebody, a Beyonce-like singer who's very popular, but the problem is she's become pregnant and she's going to have to cancel her stadium concert in Berlin in nine weeks. So Mick rolls the dice here and it's like, actually, just to avoid the agency getting sued, which I actually knew a Hollywood producer who a big star canceled on him at the last minute. And that lawsuit lasted, I want to say, more than three years, maybe even five years. And the stakes were like like hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. You know, bec- because actually the, that performance didn't happen. So Mick's objective here is, let, I don't care who steps out on stage, somebody's got to. Okay, so... You know, and it was a one night. I mean, it wasn't, you know, but after this, there could have been a run, there could have been a world tour, What? but he'll deal with that. <laughs> he'll deal right. with it later. <laughs> but then, so, but then the third wheel in the cog here is Brad Davenport. And I took really what amounts to a stereotype of the billionaire boyfriend. Okay. Romantic comedy. Here's a trope. Mm-hmm. Okay. But... What's interesting about a privileged person who is, and I knew a couple of hedge fund managers, young men who were actually, the, their claim to fame was they were brilliant mathematicians. You know, they'd all gone to, you know, business school, but it was primarily their, you know, their wonkiness, their ability to, you know, deal with mounds of calculations and projections and numbers. This is not, this is an introverted person, typically. Okay. Mm-hmm. If you have somebody who's this bright, who went to a private school, they're going to be bullied. Yeah. <laughs> they're going to be the last person chosen for this softball team. They're going to be teased. They're, they may, you know, they may get beaten up on the playground. All right. I mean, these are the kids that Harry Potter was written for. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) J.K. Rowling's son. All right. And I knew, you know, some people that I met in business who were extremely difficult to get along with had actually come from privileged backgrounds and they were like this. And they, in, in Hollywood, we have an expression, are you an attacker or an attractor? And it's like, you have to pick, you can't be both, but you know, some studio executives who we will not name, who had a reputation for not only sexual, being sexual aggressors, but also violent, you know, perhaps throwing a printer across the room. These are attackers. Mm -hmm. Well, the reason that there are attackers at the top of the studio hierarchy is that when you have stars who are getting 20 million, even some $50 million salaries, they tend to be temperamental because they, no one says no to them. And if you have a star who's out of control and you need to get them in line, it might take a bully. I mean, that, that's just the dynamics. That's just what happens. Whether the star happens, I mean, the star that makes 50 to Tom Cruise, okay? Right. 
somewhat temperamental. I never met him. I never dealt with him, but okay. Female stars, temperamental. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> but I, you know, but they are in the, they are in the 10 to $20 million salary range. And again, not used to being denied. And so, but attractor, a much rarer breed and much more difficult to handle. These tend to be independent filmmakers because you don't have, if you have money behind you, you can be an attacker because you can threaten consequences of millions of dollars and, you know, and publicity campaigns that you will withhold. <laughs> and leaks you will make to the press. <laughs> You'll call Rupert, you know. So, but an attractor is someone who is so talented and has such a reputation for being an attractor that talented people in the business will work and take a pay cut to work for them. And they will work consistently for them. They will, and you will see in their movies, the same bunch of talented folks, you know, same cinematographer, same set direct decorator, same, you know, same, oh, same editor always. Okay. So we've got Woody Allen, even though in his personal life, mm -hmm. he may not be all that exemplary at times, but he is known as someone on the set who is an extremely sensitive director. Okay. Mm -hmm. Paul Newman, as a person, as an actor, he would go to Hollywood parties. He and Joanne Woodward and she would knit and he would drink Coca-Cola. Okay. And they were just not in the Hollywood mold. He, they were known to be relatively resident in terms of publicity. Okay. But a, surpri a surprising one, Clint Eastwood. Not in his younger years. <laughs> his younger years, you know, multiple wives, girlfriends, multiple children. By <laughs> but he's done right by the children, though. <laughs> you know, Alison Eastwood, the cast in many movies. But in his later years, in his crusty years, if you will, Clint is known to be an extremely sensitive and creative, insightful director, and he will. I mean, again, the reputation, I've met him once. I did speak with him once, but he, he is known for hiring actors who he respects and he knows respect him and who he gives absolutely minimal direction to. And a real contrast, and this would be a technical contrast, not so much a, not so much a, Oh, sympathetic contrast would be with somebody like Spielberg. Okay. Steven Spielberg is known to storyboard every shot. He wants it exactly the way he sees it in his mind. He and Hitch Hitchcock are supposedly similar in this way. Hmm. And Spielberg is known for, he will do 30 takes to get it exactly the way. Now his critics will say he's wrung all the passion out of the scene by the time he does that, but Mr. Eastwood is known for putting his actors in front of the camera. He will have a brief run through. He will, you know, as directors must to make, check the lighting, check, check the focus, check the framing, make sure that the actors at least know what they're supposed to say. And then one take and Clint doesn't say cut. 
That's what they tell us. He walks away from the camera and mumbles, we're done. <laughs> That's funny. So this is trust. You know, it's right. like, okay, the editor's going to see where to. Oh, that's the, here, there's an, another, here's another guideline from Hollywood, okay? In terms of storytelling, how writer, what writers should do, and editing, what Hollywood film editors should do is think of it as a Hollywood party. Enter late and leave early. So jump in the action as it's already happening. Don't give me the old Hollywood establishing shot of the front of the building and the character walking in and whatever. No, it's a contentious meeting at the agent at the Hollywood agency. We're in the conference room and we're right in the middle of the meeting and, you know, we're joining the argument in pro progress. Okay. And we're also going to when we leave, we're not going to watch that character put down the phone or walk out the door or, or, you know, we're not going to, we're going to resist the temptation to tie it off because we want the momentum going into the next scene. We want that cliffhanger. And, and again, and another one, but this comes from the world of mystery novels is Dan Brown says, and I always thought of Diane Brown as somebody who was good at painting his characters into a corner. You know, he'd get them in a locked room and the water's rising and, you know, the, it's a, you know, it's a life threat. And when I, I took his master class, I thought, oh, I'm, he's going to tell me how to write these cliffhangers, you know, action, which I, I don't know a lot about. And his advice was surprising. He said, make promises to the reader continue early and often. That's the secret to the cliffhanger. And I thought, really? <laughs> what does he mean by that? And the, he said, the promise is simply, you're at the end of the chapter. If you turn the page, you'll find the answer to the question. And so every time I'm creating a dilemma, a question, an issue, something that needs to be resolved. That is a promise I'm making to the reader. That is something I've got to deliver, you know? And it was Chekhov who said, I think, you know, if you introduce a gun in the right. second act, you'd better fire it in the third act. So yes, make promises. And so then that also leads me to the process of writing, whether it's romantic comedy or mystery or whatever. When I wrote nonfiction books like these instructional filmmaking texts, I was writing to an outline. I was usually working with an editor. If I abandoned the outline, I had to say the reason why and get approval. When I write fiction, I'm not sure whether this was true from the outset. Because in some cases, I was adapting movie scripts that hadn't gotten sold. But yes, trust the, un the subconscious, unconscious. I'm not sure what the distinction is, but don't plan. Um, as a writer, as an author, if I can surprise myself, I make the interesting choice. Oh, you know, when you're at a fork in the road, always make the interesting choice. 
always make the unexpected choice. Always do what, if you can figure it, if you can, if it occurs to you, what you haven't seen in a movie, <laughs> you know, the predictable, you know, choice. Or what's the outrageous choice? What would be, it was another, it was another, some other advice. I just heard the other, we, I went to the Los Angeles Festival of Books and one of the writers said, oh yeah, write like it's career suicide. Nice. <laughs> and I thought, that's a challenge right there. So yes, but. Also, and I think the actor's training, again, we're coming back to Hollywood. I think that the actor's training does help you understand that when you put those characters on the set and you invest them with their costumes, their roles, their environment, their personalities, trust where they want to go. You know, let these characters invent themselves. And that was one of the things that, I began to realize when I was an actor and I, you know, I didn't get very far with that. I auditioned for graduate school and, but then I got sick, I don't know, whatever. But one of the things that became very real for me was, you know, if I want a certain kind of role or, or I think that I have a strength in a particular area, I'm going to have to wait until that that script crosses my desk. I'm going to have to wait for somebody to invent that part. Why don't I write a script and I'll just invent all the parts. I'll get to play every one of them. You know, including the women, the kids, the dog. I mean, that's a whole lot more fun for me. So, and I think that actors also, and I think this, this is something of a serious consideration is of people on the planet. I think someone like Joaquin Phoenix, you know, for the Joker, he's got to go into the depths of his personality and find those emotions, find that character. I mean, okay, you can talk about method acting and, you know, the difference between him and Gil good and you know all like that but you really do have to find that part of yourself that's real and so if you're playing a war criminal you're going to eventually understand that anybody is capable of anything and you know if we say history is written by the victors you know how much of the, granted, it was great that the war criminals got defeated, but how much of their motivations do we truly understand? So, I mean, that, that's a more, you know. Moira, <laughs> the criminal defense attorney, would understand that. It's like, you know, I, I know this guy's guilty, but he needs a fair trial and somebody has to represent him. I think that's how Mick had the confidence that he know that he could make this gamble and, you know, put her out on the, you know, Mercedes-Benz auditorium in Berlin with eight seats, 18,000 people. And, you know, I mean, she'll have rehearsal. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was interesting to hear how you explained all these dynamics between the characters and uh, this uh, 
parallels with the real world. Uh, now I would like to talk about some things that attracted my attention in the book and specifically this storyline of building a public persona for Moira and for any you know, superstar we can imagine. As you describe it, and I think the reality is that the public persona is always different from uh, the real person because it's a constructed thing. Do, do you think it's inevitable? And where is the balance between authenticity and uh, construction? Because if you are too artificial, you just want to attract people. They will feel that false emotion, that false uh, behavior. What do you think about it? I do agree that it's inevitable. And the reason is that at its basis, Hollywood is a business. It's always been a business. In the silent film era, there was the aspect of art, but you know, the people who founded the studios were garment executives from New York City. That's the reason why they called scripts material. Okay. And a star's persona is a brand. And that is how agents, managers, and even filmmakers are trained, conditioned, adopt the mindset. That is how they approach building the character. You're building a brand. You're, you know, by a style of, I mean, you know, the Met Gala, the style of dress, okay? You know, is that guy going in a, you know, in a tuxedo or in, you know, a trans cutaway dress. I mean, it, it, yes, it, I mean, now so much more is possible than before. But I mean, again, that person's street persona that, you know, if you met that person in a coffee shop, a classic example is comedian Art Carney from back in the 1950s, early TV movies. One, you know, he and Jackie Gleason, I mean, some of those comedy routines, you know, where he was just upstairs, the clueless upstairs neighbor, the fumferer, that, that's a technical term, you know, a technical term, fumfering, something that actors do and they can't think of what to say. Art Carney was famous for that. He was brilliant. He was a brilliant comedian. He got on the to Tonight Show one night with Johnny Carson. He had nothing to say. Because <laughs> he had no script. He had no script. <laughs> He was a rather, you know, we can go back to Eastwood. I'm using male examples here, but, you know, in the early days, Glenn Eastwood was a piano player at the bar where his mother worked. I'm not sure what profession she was in, but he then went to Hollywood as a stuntman. He worked as a stuntman at Universal Studios and it wasn't, and he got a few small parts, but it wasn't until Italian director Sergio Leone came along and said, you know, you look like a star. Why don't you come over to Spain and shoot these Westerns, you know, and, you know, we'll build it around you and say, characters around him. So the characters didn't even speak English or speaking Italian, Spanish, and they dubbed, you know, they dubbed, you know, the spaghetti Westerns. And then when he came back to Hollywood, he was an international star as Charles Bronson became an international star for revenge movies. So, so, you know, I don't, I think if you'd met Bronson, he would have been much more mild mannered than, you know, I mean, he was, he, 
in his movies, he was someone who had to be aroused to anger. He was supposed to be a, you know, someone who really disliked violence, but he, you know, the, and the first real, you know, a member of this family would be killed brutally. And so he would spend the rest of the movie stalking down the guys who did it. And then in the end, he would, the audience would feel he was justified doing the same bloody horror to that person and worse. You know, you see how that equation works. And the same was true of women for a long time in Hollywood, especially during World War II, when movies were made more for women because they were the ones in the theaters. You know, they were either, they either had jobs, domestic jobs, or, you know, there, there were much fewer men around and the women's were very oriented toward women. The movie would be about a fallen woman. The movie, and, and operas are like this too, but a, someone who makes a bad choice or is in a difficult circumstance or has to fight her way from the bottom, but, but slides into disrepute. But in, at the end of the movie, she's either got to be she's either got to reform herself or she's got to be punished. So before she leaves the theater, she has to know that, you know, being a prostitute is probably a bad idea or, you know, or having a child out of wedlock, you know, probably, a, you know, you know probably going to be make you unhappy. You know, now we've got a whole different set of constructs about what it's okay to do. I mean, now we talk about the glass ceiling and we talk about competition, but I mean, you know, it, again, in Hollywood, you'll find women executives. There are quite a lot of women executives in Hollywood, but one of the things is that the glass ceiling has simply raised a few floors, yeah. is that they can get up to this side of the ceiling by showing they're just as mean and tough as men. And they can be just as nasty and just as abrupt and just as, you know, unreasonable. Okay. Oh, yeah. She's, a, she's got a hard edge. The thing is, to get to the board level, to get to the executive suite, you have to be a really nice guy. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, now I, that said, you know, chair, recent chairman of, CEO of General Woman, Silicon Valley, you know, Meg Whitman. She's now the ambassador to Kenya, by the way. The new Silicon Valley, East Africa. So, yes, I do think branding is very much what it's all about. And that's one of the things that Moira discovers is, and you read about this, she complains that she's, she says, I'm in more, I'm in meetings, but they're not rehearsals. They're just, they're talking about my publicity and my, you know, my, my exposure and my interviews. She says, I feel like a bottle of ketchup. That's true. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to ask you is related to what we have just discussed. This kind of hypocrisy, for instance, uh, Mick recommends Moira to go vegan for her public image, which, you know, is not compatible with the concept of a big show at a stadium because it's not environmentally friendly at all. And there are more such things in show business. You know, 
the suggestion to go vegan, my wife is vegan and I, you might call me pescatarian. I'm not quite, you know, able, I, you know, I just, it's more difficult for me, I guess you'd say, but, you know, she's an animal rights advocate. She, you know, she believes not only in the nutritional aspects of it, but the moral aspects of it, but it was, you know, very interesting. Okay. Again, we're coming back to Hollywood. Uh, just the Saturday night, I saw Ricky Gervais stand-up concert at the Hollywood Bowl. And he is someone who's notorious for his, you know, as Don Rickles was back in the day, you know, insults, politically incorrect, outrageous. And yes, he, you can tell by his humor, he was deliberately that way. But he's also one of the reasons, and my wife did stand-up comedy. She's very, she has some admiration for stand-up comics who are really accomplished and he's certainly one of them. And so she encouraged me to go. And I, re I just remembered his, you know, hosting the Golden Globes and, you know, not, not you know, pleasing everybody as it were, but I was very engaged by his concert, his comedy, but he is an animal rights advocate. Now he doesn't get up there and preach, but actually he did. I mean, he, you know, he talked about um, one of his whole comedy routines had to do with climate change and, you know, how few wild animals still exist in the planet. You know, 4% of all living beings are wild animals and that's disappearing. I mean, you know, he's encouraging people to, you know, he doesn't say don't eat meat. He said, if you could, you, if you could skip eating meat one day a week, you're going to, and you know, he had the, he had a statistic for how many hundreds of thousands of beasts would, you know, would be spared as it were. But, you know, he had this one huge joke about, you know, his, and he was unapologetic about the fact that he has a lavish lifestyle. And he said, I, you know, my house has eight bedrooms and nine toilets. He says, I want to make things worse for you younger generations. So you'll solve things. So I go around and I go around from every bathroom in the house. I keep flushing the toilets because I want there to be a world water shortage. Because, it, you know, human beings respond to crisis. So I want to wake you guys up. He made the outrageous choices. And again, all right, you know, that's his brand. I, I think if you met him in a cafe, he might be. A thoroughly boring person. Now, I kind of doubt that, but it could possibly be. It's like he might be, he certainly might be reclusive because he does talk about, you know, his partner, Jane. And it's like, oh, yeah. And that was the other. He had a callback, a perpetual callback is, oh, that's right. I promised Jane I wouldn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, they must have, I mean, and he had some, he, I mean, he had some jokes about disabled people. I mean, and again, the what with his act outs, and you know, there was you know quite a bit of you know class oriented, race oriented, sex oriented, trans. You know, again, trans is part of the conversation now. So I mean, there was those kinds of things, but you know, that audience was incredibly receptive. You know when. When he had them turn on their cell phones <laughs> at the end, you know, it was a sea of stars. He says, oh, 
Lord, you know, the Beatles didn't get this. <laughs> so, yeah, a brand. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the characters, I think it's Mick, uh, quotes Marx saying that uh, Marx called religion the opiates of the masses, but Hollywood hadn't been invented yet. Do you think that the entertainment industry today replaces religion in terms of that need to find something else to escape from reality? For sure, Hollywood is a direct replacement for a heaven full of Greek gods. Okay? You know, Marilyn Monroe is, Elvis is, these are eternal icons that are as much alive today as they always were, that are worshipped for their, you know, as each Greek god had a particular character trait that they were talented for, had control over, you know. So Zeus was the Hollywood studio executive of his time. He was using the casting, you know, lead of the swan. It's okay. She, she wasn't doing anything. I'm going to make her a goddess. I'll just impregnate her, you know. And so, yes. The stellar hierarchy of stars is very much a part of a religious universe. And one of the things that I find it's just something I see, and it's true of not only movies, but also video games, say. We do call it, in this town, the entertainment industry. We don't call it the arts and entertainment industry. So inherent in the term entertainment is distraction. Okay? So... We're watching this over here. I mean, if you know, if you want to talk to some of the conspiracy theorist type folks, they're going to talk all about how this is a distraction that, you know, the aristocracy, the deep state, you know, creates so that we won't focus on whatever. Now, one of the things that I actually, my next blog post, I'm going to reflect on. When I, again, back when I was doing books on digital filmmaking, my co-author and I wrote a book that was directed at uh, teens, digital filmmaking for teens. And part of that book was we had, uh, we were working with a, an actual secondary school instructor and he had them, he had his students, all his students in his classes, make these short films as part of their coursework. And he said, why don't we have a, why don't we have a, a film contest and you guys be the judges and then we'll put the winners on the, back then the books shipped with a DVD. We'll put the winner, winning ones on the DVD of the book. And that was a great idea. You know, the films are only like a minute or two long. And, you know, I must've watched, oh, more than 20, maybe, maybe more student films. I, I don't remember the number. But the thing that shocked me, that floored me, was three of them, only three of them did not resolve the plot with violence. 
And I think all but five of them, the hero picked up a firearm to resolve the violence. To re yeah, to resolve the question, to resolve violence. One was a comedy, a one, one was a parody, and the ones that didn't use guns were martial arts. So swords and staves. Now, these were not inner you, Okay, oh, yeah, this must have been a, a class of inner city kids, you know, their violence is, you know. This film festival, this contest was before, this was easily 15 years ago. This was before mass shootings became a daily experience, okay? But I do wonder, okay, you know, we can blame a lot of sectors of the of society for violence, but I don't think Hollywood has looked in the slightest looked into the idea that we've been conditioned by movies to resolve conflict with you know we go back to Aristotle conflict drama is conflict, okay, but conflict in a in a play often is an argument, a debate. You know, it's a con you know, play is primarily conversation. It's, you know, it's people walking in and out of, of rooms and scenes. You don't usually find, yeah, okay, absent that comment by Chekhov, you don't usually find gunplay in a stage play, okay? But, you know, in movies, we've got this eye candy of explosions, you know, attacks, you know, Armies coming over the hill, and we are conditioned that this is the way humans resolve their differences. And spirited debate, or, you know, I mean, you come back to studio notes. If a studio executive tells a screenwriter, raise the stakes, that is Hollywood code for threatened to kill someone. Threaten to blow something up. Now, it might not, but, you know, it's the ticking bomb. You've got to find the right wire to, to remove before the, you know, the weapon goes off in downtown, you know, wherever. So, yeah, I think that conditioning, and again, also, we're you know, coming back to comedy, human relationships, again, male Aggression, if you will. Who is James Bond but a rapist and a, an assassin? How did that guy ever become a national hero? Okay, there's a scene in James Bond. I don't remember which movie. He's in a he's in a health spa, and he walks into the steam room, and you know it's all done behind the foggy glass. But he literally rapes the nurse against the wall. And he walks out, proud of himself. She walks out, smile on her face. He didn't know her. He didn't say, would you like to dive into the steam room and, you know, make out like horny teenagers? Well, he did not even ask. Now, granted, the verbal ask is not only awkward, <laughs> difficult to say, <laughs> Um, and among, you know, maybe, maybe you could do it by text. <laughs> you say, 
want to go in the closet? You know, get away from the folks at the party? Want to, you know, want to go outside? So, yeah, I, I mean, communication not only is difficult, always has been. That's the crux of storytelling, isn't it? You know, <laughs> we, you know, we talk about, you know, Jane Austen, the marriage plot novel, mm -hmm. Victorian Dilemma, is, you know, if he could tell her he loves her, that would be the end of the story. Right. <laughs> and, you know, the whole plot, is she going, is the rich guy going to propose to her so she doesn't have to either become a prostitute or a nun? Again, also, hypocrisy. The success of Fifty Shades of Grey, which I, I humbly would suggest is a recycled story of O, which is a recycled Marquis de Sade. And the thing that stuns me is so many of my feminist friends thought that was a wonderful book. We're talking about nonstop abuse. Now, in that book, I, I read half of it before I just abandoned it. In that book, he actually talks her through the terms of the contract that she's going to have to willingly sign so that he can do unspeakable things to her. So, yes, there was a negotiation. <laughs> um, I don't yeah. know what to say about that. I just don't. <laughs> yeah, actually, it's all about, you know, literature and film now, and we're going to see other genres and art forms changing with the times and with the values that are prevalent. And it's interesting to see how, you know, because our time is so fast paced and, you know, before uh, you could be reflecting on a phenomenon like 20 years after it happened now, there is Me Too. And we're already talking about Me Too after post Me Too situation. And in a year, there will be something else. And uh, yeah, so it's it's very you know indicative of the society we are in. And I will say, in terms of media platforms changing and genres changing, one of the things that I find delightful actually is the prevalence not only of streaming, so that you've got the Hollywood movie in your home but also the long form the cable cable series or the the limited series i've said this before in interviews when i've binge watched eight episodes or 13 episodes actually i i couldn't there was a turkish there was a turkish series i think it was blood money love 150 episodes. <laughs> My wife and I watched it during COVID. Not all at once, of course. But when I have finished watching a series like that, I miss the characters. I miss them like, like, like people who moved away. I never put down 
I mean, I want to read the sequel if it's a series. But I never walked out of a feature film and said, you know, I just don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow. I don't know. Where did she go? And I think that character development and getting on the inside of characters and getting to their more complex motivations and their richer relationships with other characters is much more possible in an extended series. And that's something that exists in the novel, often exists in the novel, that really the feature film is the condensed version. You know, you have, it's, you get the conversations rung out and, you know, you're seeing action, you know, and that goes back to the Hollywood agent, you know, show, don't tell. Well, yeah, okay. That's true for the movie, but, you know, if you told novelists not to tell half, half it, their books would be half as long. So, you know, and if you're covering a span of time, you have to tell, you know, you don't go anyhow. Yeah. I, I think that our culture, oh, I mean, my first series of romantic comedies came out the first book, my inflatable friend. Okay. Silly, silly title came out in 2009. That was the year the iPhone was introduced. There's no use of texting in, in that story. Okay. And so it may seem hopelessly dated. I actually wrote a preface and said, you know, I hope you find this entertaining because it's, it's about a bygone era. In <laughs> if it's a good story, I think people will definitely like it anyway. And again... Not necessarily, I mean, the title may appeal to prurient interest, but it's, you know, it's about a car hop who tries to make his girlfriend jealous by driving a life-size doll dressed like a famous movie star <laughs> around Hollywood in a convertible. Okay, so the paparazzi getting pictures of this the couple driving by, and then the paparazzi go to the real star and say, is this your new boy toy? And she says, sure. <laughs> why did why does she what's she covering up <laughs> how is this going to change his life which it does <laughs> yeah so both of those let's see you know both of those characters have a brand that they have a stake in defending and neither of those brands have anything to do with their person their private personal lives <laughs> Yeah, brand is everything these days, <laughs> as we have already well, discussed. And, you know, from the you know, and from an author's standpoint, you know, I have a website, I have a blog, I have social media interactions. You know, I do kind of interviews with kind of hosts like you. You know, some of whom don't punish me. So, yes, I it I have worked with publicists who oh don't talk about that or you know. You know, the, you know, I have a, my book, Harry Harambee's Kenyan Sundowner is, it was drawn from two years that I spent living with my wife in East Africa when she was doing child welfare work. And a lot of it is, it's practically a memoir. It's a work of fiction, but, you know, I'm writing basically about an interracial love affair with a a middle-aged fellow who goes to Kenya for a 
sex tourism. All right. Huh. Now, what I witnessed firsthand about that in Kenya is it's actually a lot more like Tinder dating. I mean, again, I'm not an expert on that, but I mean, no, I saw, especially like European vacationers of either sex, I, you know, either sex. I, I, for example, I would see unassuming German school teacher, middle-aged, widowed, or maybe there's a husband back home. I don't know, but she's driving around. She's got this young male Kenyan driver and, you know, oh, he's my bodyguard or he's my tour guide. Okay, fine. Uh, yeah, I just saw you in the swimming pool last night, you know, necking at midnight. But the thing is, I come to find out she comes back every summer. She spends two weeks always with this same fellow. And, you know, I used to take the tuk-tuk back from the, I would walk to the vegetable stand in the morning. It's only about half a mile, but I had two big sacks of groceries for the uni. So I would take a tuk, I would spend a dollar to take the tuk-tuk back to, you know, our house. And once I got into Charles's tuk-tuk, and I said, oh, Juma was in line ahead of you. I'm, I don't want to offend him because I knew all these guys by name by now. I said, he was in line ahead of you. And he was a, you know, younger fellow, always wore these distinct, he had a new hat every week. He was always, he had his earbuds, you know, he was a happening guy. And he says, we don't like Juma. And I said, why is that? And he says, and, you know, his vehicle Charles's vehicle was older, kind of beat up diesel. And he said, you notice I have an older vehicle. I lease mine. Juma's Tuk Tuk is brand new. His British girlfriend bought it for him. <laughs> so is love transactional? Can be. That's that certainly is, but I mean, you know, I, when I began to think about this, you know, this is the stuff my publicist told me not to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> Jane told me. That's what I <laughs> okay, we're not going to talk but, about. But when I think about unconditional love, okay, what is the transaction of unconditional love? The transaction of unconditional love is if I love you unconditionally, I might sleep better tonight because I'm not going to really worry about what you're doing. <laughs> I'm, not in, I'm not in, I'm not in perpetual judgment about, you know, how can I help her do better? <laughs> you know, why, why is she always getting mixed up with these bad guys? I mean, why do women love bad guys? I mean, that's another book, right? Absolutely. <laughs> because not, neither, Mick's, neither Mick nor Brad is a bad guy, okay? These are both men who respect women, but they have difficulty communicating with them in their own way. Is You know, Mick, as an agent, is a master manipulator, obviously. Let's hope he's an attractor. Okay, but manipulating 
one might say, not necessarily lying, but leaving out big portions of the truth, <laughs> is his job. A big portion of the truth that he has to withhold from Moira is, honey, I got the hots for you. <laughs> but I'm your agent. You know, my, my office is surrounded with glass. Why? Why does it look like a goldfish bowl? So people can see in. So I can't put the moves on you. I dare not so much as hug you in my office, okay? Everyone will see. It, they're supposed to, okay? And also, I'm supposed to have your best interest at heart. I know you've got this boyfriend, Brad. It seems to me I don't really, you know, if you have a relationship, maybe we'll leak it to the reporter that we could make hay out of this. Or maybe we'll pretend that you've got something else going with this boy toy over here that we're trying to build his career. But my concern with you and Brad is, I'm not sure Brad wants you to be in this business. You know, maybe Brad just wants you on his arm when he goes to the Met Gala. Maybe he just wants, you know, to disappear to the Bermuda in, your, in his PJ. And, you know, you're going to go with him on demand because this is when he happens to have a free week. Okay, you're going to show up on on um, this fellow's yacht. You know, I studied super yacht. <laughs> you know, the oligarch super yacht. Yes, the famous 250-foot super yacht. Do you know, and there's one, there's a scene set on it. Do you know that international law says that a super, that a yacht of any size, and you know, 250 feet is about as, I won't say as big as they get, but that's pretty darn big. Can't have a crew of more than 12, <laughs> no matter the size. Or no. Wait, sorry. Can't have more than 12 passengers. That's. But the crew is unlimited. The crew can be anything. So you've got 12 Aristos cruising around the South China Sea for a couple of weeks, you know, and it's the old Las Vegas, what happens on the boat stays on the boat. <laughs> you get these celebrities, you know, who happen to know each other. There's a crew of 20. You can't put a coffee cup down. It won't hit the table. It'll go to the kitchen. <laughs> you can't say, oh, I wish I'd brought a wrap. Here it is. <laughs> yeah, I remember that my, scene. The, I, I left my sunglasses downstairs, okay? This is a world that that people, you know, it was actually it was the last episode of the second season of succession and that was set on a super yacht and you know you go into the main deck and there's the grand piano and the wet bar and it was like whoa this is just like the floating ritz hotel i mean what's i can understand being on a sailing ship you know this the spume in your face and you know and you'll huddle you'll huddle when the seas get rough, you know, you'll have a, a few drinks, you know, below decks. 
But, you know, on this thing, it's like, who knows you're at sea? <laughs> you know, how much bridge can you play? <laughs> I just, I, yeah, yeah, okay. Maybe, maybe if the guest is the hedge fund manager and, you know, you're the Hollywood philanthropist, you know, you've got a meeting of the minds over, okay, how is Warren Buffett going to spend his, I, I, Warren Buffett doesn't impress me as the kind of guy who would go on a super yacht. <laughs> you know, yeah, he has a, you know, a modest sized house in Iowa, supposedly. I think it is. I don't remember. But, but again, public persona, but also what do you have to do if you're in this rarefied world of rock stars, agents, producers, directors, when you are between gigs, you really have to be working on what am I going to do next? You know, I just saw a incredible documentary titled This Changes Everything, and it was about how few even famous and renowned women, talented women in Hollywood actually get to work as directors, as producers, is like something like 15% overall, all and a lot of them recently. Only one has ever won an Oscar, you know, and that they were talking about the fact that, you know, when you're between gigs, you are talking it up with everybody in town and you'd better not tell them you're not working. You better not tell them that you don't have anything on your plate. You better not tell them. You, you always have to be busy, busy. Oh, that's right. I have, I'm sorry. I have to cut this off because I've got a meeting with my agent this afternoon. You know, we're in development on, you know, you know, uh, this and that and the other. And then we're talking to, so, so in Hollywood, there's so much talk about attachment. Okay, if what makes me a producer, I've got a script and I'm telling everybody I've got an attachment. That's what... <laughs> okay, so yeah, Tom Cruise is expressing an interest in this, or you know, and I'm meeting, I'm going to be meeting with his people. You're not meeting with him because you actually have never even broached it with him, but you know somebody who knows somebody who knows him that's who you're having coffee with and that person is peddling their influence to say oh please attach me because i can get you to tom cruise so this i once worked as a director of development for a hollywood director he had an action script it was actually it's actually about climate change and warfare don't get me started but he claimed that he had backers who had promised him the $100 million he needed. Okay, because it was a big budget movie, a big action movie. But right. their contingency was he had to have 100000 of what they call first-in money. Okay, 100000 bucks is you have a bank escrow account that nobody can touch. It's like a trust for the project. So it's project name or producer's name, bank account, and you've got 100000 in cash in it. Right. No one wants to give you the first dollar. 
Okay. And there's a lot of producers who, you know, really suck their breath in and they borrowed a hundred thousand from mom and stuck it in the bank account. But yeah, at one point I wanted to get a Hollywood star interested in one of my projects. And I talked to one of the made the big agencies and the agent finally, after several calls, I said, what's it going to take for him to just look at this? And they said, frankly, any script we give him, he wants to do it. And he said, you know, some of these are going to be dogs and, you know, we just won't present him with anything that we think, you know, isn't real. And he said, the main thing is, have you got the reading fee? And I said, reading fee? And he said, all right, I'm going to spell it out for you. You're a newbie. $20,000 in your ESCO account. Oh. Non-refundable non reading fee. So if the project goes, we credit 20 grand to your budget. If it doesn't go, forget the 20000 Again, you, we've got a Writers Guild strike going now because, you know, those kinds of practices. I had another producer say to me, oh, yeah, really good story. Uh, you know, I, I've got to run today. We'll meet again on this or I'll call you. So he didn't call. He didn't call. His former director of development called me who didn't, who wasn't technically employed by him anymore. And she said, but you know, I'm the one who would supervise you if he gave you a deal. So I really know what he likes. If you were to give me, say, my editorial fee of $1,000, which back then was maybe $10,000. Now that's not an unusual fee for, okay. If, you know, $1,000, he says, I'll give you a set of notes. And if you rewrite the script, to my set of notes, I can almost guarantee that he'll option it. So let's parse that, okay? A set of notes, a rewrite on specul what the Writers Guild would say on speculation. You're absolutely forbidden to do. Now, I was non-union at the time, so I supposedly could have taken that deal. But again, if he options it, that means he gives me an amount of money, which could be a dollar, sometimes for a big, okay, sometimes it's $10,000, but it could be a dollar. And, you know, he's got the exclusive right to peddle that script around town for a year or two. So even then, of the hundreds of scripts he's optioned, how many projects is he going to carry forward? <laughs> okay. You know, at, if he, attaches a star. Okay. So he's got a letter from the star that says, if you get this financed, I will agree to be in your project. Okay. So this is the name star. Okay. If you get a star attachment, I guarantee you that star is going to ask him for a rewrite. And that rewrite to make that star comfortable will either be with a writer they've worked with before or a director under a director they worked with before or under a writer who is known to be a script doctor and typically gets, I mean, it was rumored before that Shane Black as an action script doctor would get a million dollars a script. That was to make the investors 
column. Oh, Shane Black's doing the rewrite. There's the Writers Guild rule, I believe, is a big budget writer would be a guild member, period, end of statement. You, it just would be, okay? To do a rewrite and get screen credit, which most writers would want. Okay. Now, there's plenty of ghostwriters who'll take the money and it's like, oh no, <laughs> this piece of crap. All right. No, but to be a script doctor, do a rewrite and get screen credit, you must rewrite at least, you must be able to show that you rewrote at least a third of the script. So even if the script the producer liked is pretty darn good, even if maybe it even if it won a script competition someplace, okay, even if it seems to everybody who reads it to be great, if they get an A-list writer to rewrite it, guess what? It's got to be changed. <laughs> so this is Hollywood. One of the notes, again, we'll come back to it. One of the notes that writer got was, hey, raise the stakes. And my last traditional question that I ask all my guests, it's related to the title of this podcast, Being Modern, Being Human. What does it mean to you, being modern and being human today? I think the main thing that I would say is that I believe, despite all the evidence to the contrary, that human beings invented the internet at exactly the time we need global consciousness to survive that we need global action, global consensus. And as an author, I feel as though storytelling is the main thing that can bring us together. Truth is stranger than fiction. The reason that fiction works and is popular is because it has to make sense. We've got to resolve that question. We've got to resolve that plot. And as, as writers, as storytellers, as filmmakers, we mine our experience, our own experiences, and we we make happy endings, if you will, out of things in our life that are in business contracting. We would call them lessons learned that resulted in best practices. <laughs> okay. So I think also in many ways, I'm a more thoughtful writer here in my later years. And I don't think I've lost my enthusiasm. I, <laughs> you know, 13, 13, I, you know, I was one of the early self-publishers. I mean, in terms of print-on-demand technology, and then ebook technology. I had a very, again, <laughs> very represented by a very long, significant agency here in California for business and technical books. Most of my career was spent doing, I did a book called How to Lie with Charts. Okay, so if... Your politicians are fibbing to you. They may be reading my book. I don't know. It's taught at Georgetown. Okay. Still is. But when I informed that agent 
that I really wanted to turn, it was time I turned to, I'd been trying to turn to fiction the whole time, you know, writing these scripts that would stack up. But I said, yeah, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to try these as novels. I, you know, let's go out with them. Have a nice life, kid. That agency represented primarily nonfiction, and they just, they felt like fiction was a waste of time. And it might have been for them. I, you know, you could say they did me a favor because I have, I now have my own publishing imprint. I know everything there is to know. <laughs> you know, paperback, hardcover, audiobook, <laughs> you know, EPUB, Kindle, you know, Substack. I have a brand new platform on Substack. Substack's amazing. And I'd been looking for, uh, you know, I was doing a fair amount of Instagram and I did some Facebook before that, but, you know, nothing was really gaining a lot of traction. I do find these days that free is a very good price point. I'm much more, I, you know, lifetime, I think my lifetime audience is in the tens of thousands, but a good chunk of that readership is free ebook promotions. You know, like the, the first book in both of my series is what you'd call perma-free. It's always free. Now, the other books, those are selling, but not quite as well, not in the thousands. So, you know, that's the world of self-publishing. Yeah, literature, both fiction and nonfiction, and film that we've been discussing today. It's all about getting through life and the circumstances we are in and trying to figure out our place on this planet. We'll continue following your books. Thank you very much for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. I wish you inspiration and all the best. <laughs> Thank you. You know, uh, GeraldEverettJones.com. That's my website, my blog, whatever. You can find me on Substack. The Substack stack just started. We've got a couple thousand people uh, headed over there. So that's great fun. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy being modern, being human, I'd love it if you could take a moment to rate and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback is so valuable to me and helps you make the show better. And if you haven't already, be sure to hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode.